Hey, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 12. Uh, Mark chapter 12, and I should tell those of you who are visiting uh, that we are in a series in which we have been uh, walking through the gospel of Mark and the last days of Jesus as recorded there in the gospel of Mark. Uh, We're going to put up here on the slide for you. I just want you to understand that the first half of the book of Mark covers uh, or chapters 1 through 8, the first half, cover the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. And it's very interesting that the second half of the book, I mean, just divided almost just right down the middle, the second half of the book, chapters 9 through 16, cover the last eight days of Jesus' life as he heads to the crucifixion. The passage that we're going to read this morning uh, occurs on Wednesday of Holy Week, two days before Jesus will be crucified. And so let's just take a moment, let's read it. It's a pretty brief uh, passage, and then I'll make some comments. Welcome. Oh, by the way, welcome those of you who are listening to us over the internet. We're so glad that you're joining us too. Let's read the passage. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Chapter 12, verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and they said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So if you've been with us, I've said that in these last few days of Jesus' life, he has a number of intellectual and theological skirmishes with the uh, religious leaders uh, of the day. This is the second such skirmish. The first one had to do with Jesus' authority, and this one is about a burning and controversial political issue in Israel. And I want to look at this passage under three headings this morning. First, the issue. I want to help you understand what the issue is here. We're going to look at the solution, and then we're going to look at the unexpected revolution. The issue, the solution, and the unexpected revolution revolution. Let's start with the issue. The issue is mentioned in the question to Jesus in verses 14 and 15. You might underline it. It's about what is referred to there as the imperial tax. The imperial tax. Now, now, I think we can all agree that nobody likes paying taxes. But this particular tax wasn't just any old ordinary tax. There were a number of taxes that subjects of Rome had to pay, just as there are a number of taxes that we have to pay. But this particular one was very different. It required every Jewish person in Israel to pay a tax to Caesar, basically, for the privilege of being his subject. Now, it wasn't an expensive uh, tax. In fact, it it was really a very minimal tax, as taxes go. But it was extremely offensive to the Jewish people. Now, why? Why was it so offensive? For two reasons. One, Caesar claimed to be divine. And the conservatives in Israel felt that by paying this tax, they were violating the very first commandment, not to have any other gods uh, before God himself. And then the second reason was that it seemed to also violate another command that God had given Israel, 
And that was to never have a foreign king over them. And so this imperial tax issue was uh, an explosive issue at the time in Israel. In fact, so much so that when the tax was instituted just about two decades before, a Jewish leader by the name of Judas of Gamala led an armed attempt at a revolution just because of this tax. And the revolution did three things. And I want you to pay very close attention to these three things. I put them up on the uh, screen here for you. The first is Judas of Gamala in this revolution called for Jews not to pay this tax. Okay, that's number one. Number two, he cleansed the temple of foreigners and uh, Gentiles and Romans. And then third, he called for an armed revolt against Caesar and a return to the monotheistic kingdom that they were created to be. In other words, let's not be the kingdom of Caesar, let's be the kingdom of God. Now, unfortunately for Judas of Gamala, he was arrested and he was executed for revolting against the empire. But do you see what's happening here? Did you notice the the similarity between the things that Judas of Gamala was doing and Jesus uh, was doing? Look at it. Again, Jesus had cleansed the temple. That's the second one up there on the slide. Just the day before all of this happens, Jesus had cleansed the temple. Okay? And then he was always talking about the kingdom of God. That's the third thing uh, that's up there. So do you see what's happening? These guys, these Pharisees and these Herodians, they're, what they're trying to find out is whether Jesus is the same kind of revolutionary that Judas of Kamala was. And all he had to do, all Jesus had to do was say, don't pay the temple tax. Remember, that was the first one on the list. That's the first one up there. Don't pay the temple tax. If Jesus says that, then everyone would have known that he was starting a revolution, just like Judas of Gamal. That's what they want to find out. Are you a, are you a revolutionary like Judas of Gamal? Now, I also want you to look at, at, at who they, they send to him. Says that they sent the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were very, uh, very nationalistic. They were very much against all of the Roman attempts to Hellenize the Jewish people. They were very conservative, very religious people, and they're completely opposed to this tax. Now, on the other hand, there were the Herodians. They were liberal Jews who were in favor of the temple tax. Because they, 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 they just wanted to coexist peacefully with Rome and not have any trouble. So what do you have? You have conservatives that are against attacks, and you have liberals that are for attacks. Does that sound familiar to you today? Anyway. Now, I will, but what I want you to understand is that these two groups hated each other. I mean, they were like, well, they were like, Republicans and Democrats. They were like conservatives and liberals. They were like oil and water. The only thing that they hated more than each other was Jesus. And so they joined forces to set a political trap for Jesus. And first, as you can see in verse 14, they try to flatter him. You know, they butter him up. They try to tell him all these nice things about himself. You ever had that uh, happen? Like when all of a sudden someone uh, who really can't stand the sight of you starts to flatter you? 
For instance, your teenage son or daughter. (laughs) Dad, I don't think I've ever told you how wise you are. What do you do, dads, when that happens? The first thing I do is I grab my wallet because that's usually what this means. Either they want money or they've, they've got bad news that's going to cost me money. Can, you, can I get an amen from the dads here? Amen, yeah. It's not that they mean it. It's that they want something. Well, this is kind of what's going on here. They're flattering Jesus to set him up for something. Once they think they flattered him, by the way, why do they think this will work with Jesus? Oh, because it would work with them. I mean, this is so what they're into. You flatter a Pharisee, you flatter a Herodian, man, you're going to get what you want because that's what means the most to them. And they think it means that to Jesus. It doesn't, but they think it does. So once they think they flatter Jesus, they ask him the question that the brain trust of the conservative and liberal uh, religious leaders have sent them to ask in order to trap Jesus. And oh, is it a trap. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now they they think that they have him right where they want him. It's a yes or no question. And no matter how he answers, he's going to alienate somebody, right? If he says, no, you shouldn't pay it, he's a revolutionary like Judas of Gamala. And the Herodians that are there, well, they're going to make sure that he gets arrested and executed by the Roman government, just like Judas of Gamala was. On the other hand, if he says, yes, you should pay it, he's a pacifist, like the Herodians who support the tax. And the Pharisees will tell the people that he's a false messiah because the messiah was expected to lead an armed revolution against Rome and free them from Roman rule. That's what they expected. And so the Pharisees would say, well, he can't possibly be the messiah because no real messiah would agree to financially support foreign rule over Israel. So either way, you see, no matter how he answers it, he's going to alienate someone. They're setting a trap for Jesus, okay? That's the issue. That's what's happening here in this passage. Now, I want to move from the issue to the solution. Let's talk about the solution. I want you to notice under this banner of the solution, I want you to notice that Jesus does something very fascinating here in this passage. It's going to be very important later, so pay close attention to this. He tells them to bring him a denarius. Now, a denarius, it was just a coin. That's all it was. It was just a coin, you know. It's like a, it's like a, you know, a dime, a quarter, or whatever. You know, it was just, just a coin, okay? In fact, it was the exact amount of the imperial tax. It wasn't much money at all, really. You know, and so when the, denari- when the uh, imperial tax was to be paid, everybody pulled out a denarius and they paid the tax collector the, the denarius. Okay? So Jesus says, he says, bring me a, a denarius. Bring me one of those. And so someone produces a denarius and Jesus must have, you know, he, he, he must have held it and, and uh, looked up at it like this. And he asks two questions. Did you notice two questions? First, he asks, whose image is this? Uh, the word image, by the way, uh, there is the Greek word icon. Uh, icon. Whose icon? Whose image is this? And second, he says, and whose 
inscription. Because, you know, just like, like if you pull out a penny, quarter, dime, you know, whatever, uh, there's, there's, there's a picture on it, right? And then there's something, it says something on it, right? You know, there's something engraved on each one of those, okay? Same thing there. So he says, whose image is this and whose inscription? And they tell him, Caesar's. Now, what does Jesus say in response? Well, as you know, he says in verse 17, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, I have to tell you something. At the end of verse 17, Mark tells us that the Pharisees and the Herodians were amazed at Jesus' answer. And I, and I got to tell you, frankly, on the surface, this doesn't seem that amazing, does it? Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. I mean, I, like if I were there, I would have said, okay, good answer. But I don't know that I would have walked away and been amazed by it until, until, I began, until I began to study it. And then I understood why they were so amazed. Nico, would you do me a favor and throw me, toss me that bottle of water? This isn't part of the sermon. I just need a bottle of water. Thank you very much. Good throw. Give Nico a round of applause for that good throw. There you go. I want you to notice three things about Jesus' response to this question. Three things about Jesus' response. And it is brilliant, this response. First, I want you to know, I want you to notice that he turned a yes or no political question into a both-and response. Turn a yes or no political question into a both-and response. And I think you could see that pretty easily, right? Now, you probably wonder, well, why is that significant? It's significant because while there are many issues in life that are yes, no, right, wrong, black, white, and by the way, you know, by the way, if you read the New Testament, Jesus never shies away from telling us when something is black and white, right or wrong, yes or no. He never, never shies away from telling us that. But while there are a lot of those kinds of things in life that are you know, right or wrong, politics is not one of them. Early in my ministry, I had a, a pastor that I respected a great deal. Told me to, you know, he told me this. He said, preach in a way that the Democrats in the church think you're a Democrat and the Republicans in the church think you're a Republican. And now, now why would he say that? Well, he said it because both can be right and both can be very wrong. And no one has to change their political party to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, those of you who are Republicans in the room, you need to understand that there are also some very sincere Christians in this room who are Democrats. And those of you who are Democrats need to know that there are some very sincere Christians in the room who are Republicans. And here's the thing I want you to, to hear me on. You cannot and must not assume that if you're, if you're in a room with Christians, everyone there belongs to the same party affiliation that you do. I can tell you that just on our staff alone, there are all sorts of differences of political opinions. But I could really care less about that. I love each of those people on the staff the same regardless of their political affiliation. But please, 
please, please listen to me on this. What is the most important thing about you? Is it your political affiliation? No, it's your affiliation with Jesus Christ. So please vote your conscience. Let your opinions be respectfully known. But understand that in your city life group, in your financial peace university class, or on your ministry team, among your Facebook friends, there are likely very sincere Christians who don't align with your political affiliation. And not only do we need to be first united around Christ rather than divided around politicians, my concern is I don't want to turn people away from Jesus because they think, well, all Christians have to be Republicans or Democrats. Let me tell you where I I think that this applies the most um, is uh, social media and especially Facebook. And I want you to be, if you you are a follower of Christ here in this room, uh, I would ask you, to please be very, very careful about what you post on your social media, on your Facebook, uh, about politics. Because there are people out there who could interpret it as, uh, to mean that, well, if I become a Christian, I have to align with them politically. And that is not the tr- truth. That is not truth. Both parties can be very right And both parties can be very wrong. And then there's Bernie Sanders. And that's a whole other story. Okay, now we're we're still under the the heading of uh, the solution. And the second thing I want you to notice about Jesus' response is that Jesus limits Caesar's authority. Now someone someone said in a commentary that I read, that this is the very first time in human history that the idea of limited government has ever come up. Jesus is the first one to come up with the idea of limited government. Okay. And here, here's what I mean about this. Jesus asks about the image on the coin, and he asks about the inscription on the coin. The image on the coin at that time was the image of Tiberius Caesar. Caesar was the title that just meant he was the emperor of Rome, so like president, okay? And Tiberius was the name of the emperor, so like President Obama, okay? His image, Tiberius Caesar's image was on every coin in Rome because literally in their governmental system, all of the money in the kingdom was Tiberius Caesar's money, okay? The inscription under his picture at the time, would have read this. It would have said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, the son of the divine Augustus. And then if you flipped it over on the reverse, it said, chief priest. Now think about that. Think about what this is saying, what that coin says. Okay, This coin that Jesus holds in his hands says that Tiberius is the king, the son of God, and the chief priest. Do you get it? All of those titles, those are Jesus' titles. Not Caesar's titles, those are Jesus' titles. Jesus is the king, Jesus is the son of God, Jesus is the chief priest. Tiberius is claiming to be a god as all of the emperors did. And so their authority over their people was all-inclusive. 
It was political, it was religious, it was moral, everything. So when Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he's saying, he's saying, okay, look, look. Dude's image is on the coin, it's his coin. That's his. So give it back. But when he adds, give back to God what is God's, he's saying, he's saying this. Caesar owns, Caesar owns the coin. But Caesar isn't God. So don't you dare give him the authority in your life that only God has. Now this is something extremely dangerous for Jesus to say. Elsewhere the Bible says that that government is to be submitted to until it requires, not that it allows, but until it requires that I violate God's moral commands. Giving Caesar back his money wasn't a violation of God's commands. But giving Caesar full authority over their lives by recognizing his claim to deity was. And that they were not to do no matter what the consequences, which is why Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. By the way, let me just tell you something. If you, if you notice in, in the text, uh, uh, the question that they ask Jesus is, should we pay the imperial tax or not? The word pay is a word that means give. Uh, it's the word give. Translators have made it say pay because it kind of helps us understand it, but it's the word give. Jesus changes. He changes the, the word when he responds to them. And he says, give back to Caesar. What is Caesar? Because it is his. Give it back to him. But give back to God what is God. Okay. And so he limits Caesar's authority. He says, yeah, he's, he's the emperor of Rome. Got it. But he's not God, and he is not the full authority over your life. Okay, and then third, here's the third thing I want you to notice. Again, we're under this umbrella of the solution. Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, give back to God what is God's. Okay, third thing I want you to notice about his answer is that Jesus makes ownership a function of image. Now, here's what I'm trying to get at here. If you were with us last week, we looked at the parable uh, that Jesus told just before this little skirmish. And uh, we said that that was what Jesus was teaching in that parable, was that God is our owner and we are just his tenants. And we said that one of the problems that we have is that we tend to get that turned around. We think we're the owners of our lives when really we're just the tenants. When Jesus asks whose image is on the coin, he knows the answer, of course. The Pharisees shout out Caesar's. So then Jesus says, we'll give back to Caesar. What is Caesar's? What is Caesar's? The coin. That's Caesar's. But what's the implied question in the last part of Jesus' answer? Give back to God what is God's. What's the implied question? Here's the implied question. And whose image is on you? Caesar's image is on the coin. That's his. Whose image is on you? Because that's going to dictate who your owner is. Which, of course, Genesis 1 answers very clearly. Genesis 1.27, So God created mankind in his own image. And if you don't understand, if you don't get that the first time, in the image of God, he created them. And so if God is your owner, 
Give him back what is his. Your very life, every part of it. Pharisees and Herodians, the power that you so love, you Pharisees, you Herodians, the flattery that you so love, the attention and the glory that you live for, give it back to God because it's all his. And here's a question I'd like for you to think about today. What would he say to you that you need to give back to God because it's his? I would suggest that the answer to that question might be the very thing that you think you can't live without. What if you were to sort of uh, hold it up in the air this afternoon and, and if it's not a tangible thing or if it's something like if it's a car, you can't hold it up in the air. But, you know, uh, sort of mentally, you just hold it up in the air and you say, it's yours. Do with it what you want. Before I moved uh, here, sometimes uh, in my previous churches when we would be singing in worship, I would kind of, sometimes I would hold my hands up and, and you know, kind of open like this. I stopped doing it when I moved here because I noticed that, uh, at least in the church that I was in at the time, no, no one really did that. And so I thought, well, I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. But our new worship leader, Nathaniel, uh, he's kind of urged us to do that a few times. And so I'll probably start uh, doing it again sometimes, like I did today. Because for me, at least, for me, Okay, I'm, not, I'm not saying you have to feel this. But for me, at least, that's my way of saying that I feel convicted that there's something in my life that I'm, I'm grabbing onto, that I'm holding onto, that I'm essentially worshiping, that I think I can't, like I can't live without it, and, and that I'm thinking that I'm the owner of. And so I'm figuratively, with my physical body, offering it to God to say, it's yours, it's, it's, it's not mine, it's not mine. Now, I don't raise my hands like that all the time. And that certainly doesn't have to be the way that you symbolize your open-handedness before God. It's just, it's just my way. But no matter how you do it, recognize that because the image of God is on you, you belong to him. He is the owner of your life and everything you have is his, not yours. Okay? That's the solution. You know what's so fascinating about that solution that Jesus gives? <laughs> Jesus packed a lot into that one answer. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. He, he packed a whole lot in that. Um, how many of you are on Twitter? Raise your hand if you're on Twitter. Okay, all right. What's so fascinating to me about this answer is that sometimes I try to tweet stuff um, that is much less profound, and I can't get it into 150 characters. Jesus said all of those, th- you know, all those three things that I had you pay attention to, Jesus said all of that in guess how many characters? Guess how many characters? I counted them in, in Greek. I counted the characters in Greek. 75 characters. That's all it took to do that. And in fact, he probably said that sentence in about 10 seconds, and it's taking me over 30 minutes to communicate the meaning of it. So we understand. That's how, that's how brilliant... That's, that's why the Pharisees and the Herodians were begrudgingly amazed by Jesus because his answer so brilliantly and succinctly avoided their trap and shed light on the issue of the imperial tax as well. Okay. 
We've talked about the issue. We've, we've looked at the solution. And finally now, I want to talk about the unexpected revolution. You remember that I said earlier that what these guys were asking Jesus was, essentially, are you a revolutionary? You guys hear that? What, it, what is that? I, I mean, I literally have no idea. Am I doing something? Oh, you're doing something. Were you doing that on purpose? Well, if you were, there you go. You can have it. Can you make that stop? Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> Never know what people back here are up to. Um, you remember I said earlier, and the reason I want you to make it stop is that now I'm coming to really the big moment of this sermon, okay? All right, thank you. You remember that I said earlier that what these guys were asking Jesus was, are you a revolutionary like Judas of Gamala was? Because Judas of Gamala had been saying and doing very similar things. He had cleansed the temple just like Jesus. He called for an armed revolt against Caesar in order to make Israel the monotheistic kingdom of God that it was created to be. In other words, let's, he, was, he was sort of preaching the, the kingdom of God. And remember the other thing that he did was he said, don't pay the imperial tax. That's the denarius, the, the coin. Now about that coin, remember I said it was, it was really interesting that Jesus said, bring, you know, can someone bring me this coin? You remember that the coin had Tiberius Caesar's image on it, but it had all of Jesus' titles on it, king, son of God, chief priest. On the one hand, here is this massively powerful and vastly wealthy empire, Rome, that the Jewish people were expecting their Messiah, their king, to overthrow in an armed revolution. And while Caesar owned all the money in Rome, this guy who's claiming to be their Messiah, this king, literally doesn't have a denarius to his name. He's got nothing. He has, to, he has to ask someone to loan him a denarius so that he can answer their question. What's the significance of that? What's the significance of that? Here it is. Jesus is saying, look, every revolution inside the kingdom of man throughout history has been about power and wealth and the other trappings that come with it. Every one of them, which means that none of them really are revolutionary. They're not changing anything fundamental. They're just changing who has the power and who has the wealth and the trappings associated with it. They're just kind of rearranging the furniture and who owns it. On the other hand, Jesus is saying, the revolution that I'm going to bring, the kingdom of God, has a completely different perspective. I'm a king unlike any other king that you've ever seen. I'm a king without a denarius because this revolution isn't about money. I'm a king with no army because this revolution isn't about power. And the only trappings that come with my kingship are a Roman cross, a crown of thorns, and an inscription above my head that says mockingly, king of the Jews. Now think about this with me. Think about this. No revolutionary in the world throughout human history has ever been able to do good for the world, if it was indeed good. They were never able to do good for the world until they had wealth and power. On the other hand, Jesus did something good for the whole world without even a denarius in his pocket. 
and with no army to support him in complete weakness. And in fact, the high point of his work was when he was executed on that Roman cross. And in doing so, Jesus was saying, if you follow me, if you become a part of my revolution, if you become a part of my kingdom, you will become a revolutionary like me. My kingdom isn't about money and power. My kingdom is about the last, the least, the left out, and the looked over. Your attitudes toward money and power and the trappings that come with it, they'll change. Your perspective, it'll get turned upside down. And you say, I can't imagine. You, I can't imagine that. How could I live in this world? How could, how could I possibly live in this world and, and have a different perspective on money and power than the rest of the world has when there's so many commercials and there's so much out there that says you got to have money, you got to have power. How could that happen? Here's, here's the answer. It's the same answer every week. Look at Jesus on the cross. Jesus didn't come to be a teacher, though he taught. He didn't come to be inspiring, though he was. He came to die on a cross for your sins and mine. On the cross, he took the poverty that you deserved so that you could have the incredible wealth of God's love and forgiveness and acceptance of you just as you are. And on the cross, he took the powerlessness that was yours and he made it his own so that you could have the power of God's spirit placed in your very life if you would become a follower of his. And you can have all that and more when you begin to see Jesus, not as a teacher, not as an example, like all of the other religious leaders of the world, but as Lord and Savior. Then, and only then, you are transferred out of the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. That's the unexpected revolution. And I want to tell you something. About 1,400 years after Jesus, the wealthy and powerful Roman Empire collapsed. But over 2,000 years later, the revolution that a poor and powerless king began is still going strong. And it's going to continue to do so until the king returns. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, as we uh, think about the cross, I pray that you would bring each of us to a place that we see your Uh, poverty and that we see your powerlessness and that we understand that it's ours a poverty of spirit a poverty of 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 uh, you know like spiritual riches that poverty is ours you took it upon yourself the powerlessness to save ourselves the powerlessness to be really transformed from the inside out that's that's ours and you took it you made it your own so that we could have power of God in us. Lord, for those that are here today, maybe they've never heard this, they've never understood this, that Jesus died on the cross for the lost and the left out and the looked over and and the lonely. Uh, Lord, I pray that they would see that, that that's them and that Jesus came for them. And Lord, I pray that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ and become a follower of his. Lord Jesus, uh, we know that in reality you have all of the power 
of the universe. You are the Lord and the Savior of the universe, and we worship you as the Lord and Savior of the universe. We thank you for how far you came for our sakes to die on a cross for us. And I pray that we would give you our lives, that we would literally surrender all to you because of what you've done for us. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.